0: From Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Kef Content Manager Jack Sharkey. First of all, sadly, but in the news in the last week, Russ Solomon, the founder of Tower Records, passed away. And the thing about Tower Records is the fact that it was maybe one of the most celebrated record stores, record chains, almost anywhere. One of the reasons why is it wasn't just a retail store or retail chain, it had the backing of the music industry. They really loved Russ. Russ loved music and he loved the business, and it showed. Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard was ground zero for just about any record store. Anyone that's never been there, you've really missed something because it was pretty amazing. It was like Amazon before Amazon was ever around online in that you could find just about anything. If you wanted a record that was very, very obscure, either a CD or vinyl or a cassette, chances are they're going to have it. And they're going to have things that no one else would have. Since it was in Los Angeles, all the record labels would basically drop off their promo copies. And these were the promo copies that went out to radio stations, for instance, for promo and also for journalists. And as a result, there were some nuggets on there you just couldn't find anywhere else. So these were available at Tower. The other thing that was interesting was the fact that it was always filled with celebrities. And you'd have a celebrity like Elton John who would have them close the store for an hour and then go in and buy $10,000 worth of CDs. Literally, he'd fill up carts with records and CDs and these were records he would give to his friends or he put in his collection, but that was the best place. Of course, Amoeba, maybe today, is one of the best places, and this is also in Hollywood, but up until then, that was the best place. Also, it was funny because it was the at the beginning of the Sunset Strip, right as you entered the strip, and it was one of the few places that actually had a lot of parking. So it was one of those great places to go to. If you're trying to kill some time, and you just wouldn't go in there and look around, and chances are you would find not only one thing that you wanted to buy, but maybe a dozen. So you'd walk out of there with so many more things, more releases than you ever wanted to buy, which is kind of rare these days when people actually buy something to begin with, but let alone they go for one thing and then buy another. It doesn't happen nearly the way it used to, and really Tower Records is kind of at the forefront of that. Tower Records had such an interesting symbiotic relationship with the record labels that Jack Holtzman of Asylum Records and later Warner Electra Asylum would actually work there on a Saturday just so he could get a feel for what people were buying and how much they were buying. So he'd be anonymous and he'd be there as if he was just another worker. The other thing that was interesting about Tower Records on Sunset was the fact that you'd go in there and the customers would know more than the people that were working there. And I'm saying that in a good way because the people that were working there were experts. And they were a little on the snobbish side, but that being said, everybody that was there was a serious record buyer, a serious music buyer. And for the most part, you can ask anyone a question and you can get an answer. So it was pretty fabulous. Now, like all things, one of the problems that happened was Tower started to get bigger and bigger and bigger and got to the point where the chain was over 200 stores in more than 12 countries. Everything was going along fine, except for the fact that suddenly we got Walmart and Target in the business and they started to deeply discount CDs in order to get people in the door. And that was the beginning of the end for Tower at that point. Asylum Records, or WEA, Warner Music, actually tried to make a deal with Russ Solomon to buy part of the chain, mostly based on the stores, believe it or not, in Japan, because they were big, big profit centers. Still are today, actually. And Russ actually turned it down, which was something that he regretted many years later. That being said, even though Tower Records doesn't exist today in the way that it did, in Japan there are still 78 stores And even though Russ Solomon didn't have a part of that, it's still going strong because in Japan, of course, people still buy CDs. There's a lot of reasons. We talked about that in past episodes here. But in fact, Tower Records is still going strong there. By the way, there was a wonderful documentary on Tower Records called All Things Must Pass. It was a movie a few years ago. I think it came out in 2015. It's well worth checking out. So anyway, Tower Records was a very important piece of music history. And with the passing of Russ Solomon, so goes that history. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowarnerscircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club to access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop, and Q&A webinars. For a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more here's an interesting tidbit bose has set aside fifty million dollars to give to startups of augmented reality audio up until now augmented reality in terms of images has been fairly big and there's been a ton of money being poured into it but as with anything that has to do with pictures audio is usually the poor stepchild But since Bose is an audio company, it's actually putting 50 million bucks into this venture. Now, the interesting thing is it's trying to support its new product. I don't know the name of it, but it's a pair of glasses that doesn't capture images. What it actually does is it captures information and relates it to audio that you're listening to. So there's actually a Bose developers kit that you can add to headphones or eyewear or helmets or wearables, anything like that. And you can control it via voice commands or head gestures or even by touch. So then what happens is it places audio within your surrounding, not the images, but the audio. So Bose is looking for entrepreneurs and programmers to develop apps specifically for this developer's kit and for this particular product. Bose has invested in a number of wearable companies already, but those are less involved in the audio-only stage that it's kind of looking at here. The new product was going to be released at South by Southwest And I think we'll be hearing a lot about it in the coming weeks. But anyway, it's interesting the fact that Bose is actually putting a bunch of dough into startups that are specifically involved in augmented reality. Once again, it seems like we're jumping across virtual reality, which for half a second seemed like it was going to be the next big thing, and going right to augmented reality, which everyone kind of knows is going to be a lot more useful. So keep your eyes out for that in the coming weeks and months. Jack Sharkey is the content creation manager for KEF America, but he's also an analog and digital electronics engineer with a long history in audio as an engineer and a drummer. Jack originally got in touch with me about an interview for the KEF Masters of Sound blog, but after talking to him for a bit, I realized he had a lot to share that Inner Circle listeners would really want to hear. We spoke about the state of audio today, as well as some interesting KEF products and the future of loudspeakers via Skype from his office in Nashville. Jack, let's go back to the beginning. Give
1: me your background. Okay, so my name is Jack Charkey, and I, I work with with Kef, uh, which is a a fifty six year old, fifty seven year old a speaker manufacturer out of uh, out of the U K. And my my background is in audio engineering. And right now, I work uh, in the marketing department, doing communications and training. And I also work uh, with product development and management on their their digital music series, which would be like the LS50W, which is the wireless LS50, and, and so on. And I've been doing, I've been with KEF for about 10 years, and I've been in the audio business for about 35 years.
0: Well, let's go back before the audio business. How did you get there? Well, I was the,
1: the as a 14-year-old, I, I had this great little GE plastic stereo with two box speakers, typical 70s, olive green, you know, the whole bit, ceramic cartridge, and in our garage, we had a broken down television. So I pulled the speakers out first and I had an entire string of speakers in my room. Forget impedance, forget any of that stuff. I was just looking speakers up. And then I started learning how to do things. And then I actually started ripping apart televisions and taking the audio amps out. And, and it, so it became my thing. Um, I came to music Naturally, my my family was all musicians, and I so I grew up in a household with a with a touring uh, jazz musician and all. Um, but it was the technology. By the time I reached my teen years, it was the technology that kind of sucked me in, and then it just became this giant beast that I've been feeding ever since.
0: Okay, so you're a musician first, then. Yeah, I'm a musician
1: first. So uh, I'm a, I'm a drummer, uh, but my career has. That's been my advocation because my my career arc has really been in the technology field. So heart of a musician, paycheck of an engineer.
0: Okay. So that being said, you're a musician and you still have to make a transition from being a musician into being an engineer. How did that happen? Was this one of those things where you always knew that you were going to, to be an engineer and you were just playing music, that was your hobby, or were you a musician and then just decided to to veer off.
1: I was a musician first, but then the technology bug hit me, and it, particularly as I started learning how to to fix amplifiers, and and it was the, it was the the excitement of sound. And when I got my first eight track recording, and it, it, you know eight track cartridge, not an eight track you know multi multi head recorder, and I I started to be able to to learn how to record things and all, and then I drifted away from the music um, as As My main focus and went into the technology and really kind of delve into it and then I did work for a computer manufacturer for a number of years in research and design and at the time it was just not my thing um, because I was an audio guy but looking back on it it was probably the greatest education I I could have had based on where we are now uh, from a music technology standpoint because I have that real good solid background in, in the digital world so as I've gotten older now, I'm starting to get back to music as my primary sort of love and interest and the, and the technology has taken a backseat.
0: So you're an analog and a digital guy. That's kind of rare. I am. Yeah. I,
1: I got a job because as the, the audio engineering wasn't really paying the money that I needed at the time. And a a guy said, Hey, there's this uh, giant computer company down the street that's hiring people. I had zero digital experience. And the, the, the guy that was interviewing me drew a transistor and said, can you tell me how that works? And of course, I'm an audio guy. I can tell you how that works. Yeah. And b- he basically hired me on that because he figured, well, if you know that, we can get you in. And I spent the first two or three years there with really serious computer science and engineers just scrambling because I knew nothing. And but it's kind of, I like learning. I like learning that way. I, you know, learning under pressure is, is a great way to learn. And and that's where I came from.
0: Yeah. And then when you got back into the audio side, where was that? That was, I had always done studio work and as you
1: know, I'd always done mixing for, for local people and and recording and and live sound. Um, And then I started doing installation work on, on large theaters like churches and, 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 you know, auditorium type theaters and things. And, and then kind of got full back into that about, uh, I guess close to 20 years or 50, you know, between 15 and 20 years ago or so. And then when all that installation business went away in 2008, I was knocking on the door at Kef and, and kind of got in there basically just very luckily. And uh, the rest is history, as they say, I've been there ever since.
0: Kef is an interesting company because it's been around for a long time. And I didn't realize the symbiotic relationship that there was with the BBC. Does that still exist? Not as much as you know. Certainly not to the extent that it
1: did in the late sixties and, and early seventies. But we, you know, the the LS three uh, five A studio monitor was built by other companies, but we held the license for that and. We developed the drivers for that, and and so that very close relationship that we had with the BBC. Plus, also at a time when the technology did not allow for easy remotes, Kef was very involved in remote broadcasting. And you know, to, it's important for everybody to understand that the level of quality of the BBC as a broadcaster was was second to none, mm. uh, and in many ways it still is. But even back as far as uh, I guess the early 80s, the date escape, escapes me right now, we did a remote with a symphony in northern England, and there was a church with a giant organ d- down the road, and we actually did the microwave broadcast, you know, from the church and played simulcast with the, with the symphony at the same time. And, you know, 35 years ago or so, that was it's just an outstanding technological feat. Um, and then we've been in the in – the, um, active monitor for studios we've been in that game for quite a while and uh and in in fact even in you know in nashville most every sort of hit song that you heard in the in the mid-1990s was mixed on our like c55 speakers which were just you know they were just regular off-the-shelf speakers and and a lot of engineers fell in love with them and and so our background is kind of all over the map that way. We've been around in everybody's business for quite a while.
0: See, when I think of Kef, I think of consumer audio. I don't think of Pro so much.
1: Right. And and that is absolutely correct. Um, we In England, in the UK, we had this symbiotic relationship with the BBC, but there was always a means to an end. And, and we started as a consumer brand. We built our reputation as a consumer brand, and that continues to this day. So when we've had speakers in studios all around the world and it's always been an offshoot of engineers and producers and musicians who fall in love with the, the sound of kef you know that very very straight um, neutral sound of kef and then brought it into the studio as opposed to the other way around where we would we would push ourselves into the studio and it happened very organically that
0: it's interesting that you should refer to the sound as neutral, because especially in studio monitors, there are many monitors that are not that at all. Close, yeah. But they're still beloved by many mixers, many users. And what I've found is it really doesn't matter what you're listening to as long as you're used to it, and then you can make it work.
1: Right. And it, you know, our, our ears have a wonderful way of compensating, and, and, and our our sound memory is, is really very strong. As we, we get used to hearing things in a certain way, it's, um, it's almost impossible for us to hear it another way and enjoy it. There's a studio monitor, which I will remain nameless, that I've seen in hundreds of studios in my career. And I think 90% of the time, I've seen it with a tissue over the tweeters, because they're so hard, they're so bright. And but to try and talk an engineer who's used to hearing it that way into trying anything else is really, really very difficult, and that's a challenge for uh, anybody trying to trying to break into offering a product in the in the pro audio business because we have to develop new habits.
0: You know what's interesting about that? I finally found out how that all worked out. And we're talking about the NS10, the Yamaha NS10, and it was Bob Clearmountain who started. Or the guys at power station way back when. Mm -hmm. And they started with a Yamaha monitor that was not the NS-10. It was something prior to that that required the tissue because it was a little bright and they couldn't turn it down. There was no provision to actually turn the tweeter down. And then Yamaha came out with an NS-10. And the NS-10 had the same characteristics, so they had to use the tissue. But the NS-10M compensated for that. But people continued to use the (laughs) tissue. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. For many years, and it was one of those things where it was against what they should have been doing. I never could make them work myself. I just could not hear what the big deal was and I couldn't do it. I get a splitting earache every time I'm confronted with them. And
1: I typically work with people who just like to mix way too loud for my own for my own taste. And it's just such a brittle sound. And then what's happened to kind of take that one step further because I spend so much time with these speakers. And I like to think that I have a good, developed, critical ear. Um, now, I hear deficiencies, in particularly in, in those type of monitors. I hear the deficiencies, and they're glaring to me to the point of distraction. Whereas with a, with a neutral speaker, and, and and KEF is really great at making neutral speakers, but we're not the only one that makes a neutral speaker. Um, I, I like to think we do it better than most people, of course. But you get the point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find then if I hear something that's not neutral, particularly in the mids and the uppers, it's, I can't, I, I, I just can't deal with it because it's, it's distracting to me because I spend my whole time going, oh my gosh, I wish we could just fix that.
0: I had a great engineer who'd tell me his secret for using NS-10s and he'd say, I'd turn it up until the cones just begin to crinkle and then I, I knew I had it right. I thought, oh, okay, that's not going to work for me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a... Insert
1: cotton in years and, and quietly get yourself out of the control room if you can.
0: Yeah. Tell me about the Uniq. That looks like a very interesting concept. So
1: the Uniq has been around since we, we offered the first one, I guess in 1988 and, and, and what it basically is, is it's, it's not a coaxial speaker, even though by appearances, it looks like it's coaxial because you have the, the tweeter inside of the inside of the mid range, uh, Diaphragm, and it's but because it's co- it's coaxial and it's also a coplanar speaker, so we it's a coincident speaker is what we refer to it as, and it, technically that's what it is. And the point being that just like our our mouths or our instruments, what, whatever we do, the sound comes from one place at one time. So when it reaches our ears, it's it's has phase coherence and it is it's correctly time aligned. So the second that you what I'm doing here with my hands is I have my right hand is up high as the tweeter and my left hand is sort of down low um, as the mid range. And and what we're doing now, the sound leaves those two speakers at the same time, but it leaves it at a different place. So when the time it arrives at our ears, there's a necessary time difference between the two. That's just physics. You can't get away with that. So, you, you know, depending where you're sitting you may not get the benefit of what we would call the sweet spot, or you may not get all those frequencies aligned at the same time. With the Uniq, because everything is time aligned, it's coincident. And, and in fact, the, the speakers are designed that the mid range diaphragm are actually a waveguide for the tweeter. So this whole unit becomes one singular speaker, even though it's obviously got the two different drivers in it. And that even goes to the, to the surround around the speakers. It's all the waveguide engineering. And we've done that by using computers and just be, having been in the business for as long as we have of making Uniqs. We've, we've got it down uh, to a pretty hard science at this point. But the beautiful thing about the Uniq is you and I can be sitting in our living room or wherever we happen to have the speakers in a studio and not necessarily be in the same spot, but receive all the frequencies at the same time. So it's coherent to us. Now it's sometimes it's a very minor difference, but generally when you hear the difference in an AB test between a, a good, a well-placed Uniq driver in a, in one of our speakers, as opposed to a well-placed coaxial driver of an, of another brand, you can hear the difference in the phase alignment and it, it actually makes a, a huge difference. So it's something we're really, really quite
0: proud of. Yeah. It's very unique actually, but it makes a lot of sense. I thought it was coaxial when I looked at the diagram.
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's it's coaxial and coplanar. Um, so for, for benefit of, of, of folks that might not understand that, right, the coaxial is is the two drivers on the same axis, but the coplanar is the two drivers on the same plane, whether they be forward or backward from each other. Um, and you can say, well, wait, you know, the, the tweeter is, is down inside of that, that mid-range, so how could it be on the same plane? It is in the sense that, it's the, um, the tweeter, uh, let strike that, you can grab that in, in post. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mid-range is the, the wave for the tweeter, as I mentioned before. So through the use of, of positioning and, and all, it becomes at the same distance backwards too, as well as being aligned left and right, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does, definitely. It seems like KEF is going down market a little bit. I always think of KEF as high-end, and it is. This company has definitely gone to that segment of the market, but now I see there's a lot of computer-type speakers that are available. Is this driven by the fact that you're trying to get a younger generation into the KEF family or just actually capture them with better sounding quality audio? or I guess both, really, right? It really is both. And the realities of the
1: marketplace and the realities of the music industry and the entertainment industry are are changed drastically from what they were even 15 or 20 years ago, 15 years ago, for that matter, where where convenience has become become really the ultimate importance to most people. You know, when the CD first came out, we were amazed at the convenience of, of a CD. Oh, my goodness, we could take it with us. We could throw it across the room. It would work. It was fine, you know. And now, all of a sudden, we look at the CD in today's market as this archaic, inconvenient or inconvenient device that we have to be saddled down to when we can just download from HD tracks or from from you listen to it on Spotify and streaming. So the the realities of the business have changed, and, and in in order to be able to do what we do on the high end, uh, it's really incumbent upon us to to know what the market is demanding, especially for people who are just getting into the audio game. So, you know, the way I look at the computer speakers and, and like our, the egg and, and our Mua Bluetooth speaker and all of this, is we're able to offer a really high quality listening experience to folks who were just entering that journey. You know, I look at being a music fan as a journey. You know, when I got out of college, I started with whatever I could afford. And over the years, i built up. And it's that same principle that applies today. It's just with different technology.
0: Now, one of the problems there is the fact that you could provide a better product, but it has to be within reach monetarily. And that's a big problem. And when you look at HomePod, for instance, at, uh, what, 349, you think, okay, that's just on the edge for a lot of people, especially for some – it's only one speaker. It's stereo-ish, but it's only one speaker. So that – for a manufacturer, that's tough because you're straddling the line of quality versus reachability, so to speak.
1: Sure. And, you know, I think that applies to whatever we would be manufacturing. and I think the challenge is maybe a little bit more deep when it comes to the, the speaker industry or the audio industry, especially today, because people are conditioned um, starting about ten or fifteen years ago, that you know, an MP3 through a pair of earbuds was a sufficient musical experience, and I think a lot of people lost the appreciation for for what a, what air does when when it's confronted with music. There's a whole different world that happens when air is affected by music. So a lot of the challenge for us and for for those of us in this industry is to preach the gospel, if you will, of of high end music or even m- medium quality music for people to understand that you can start with earbuds. Or you can start with a small mono computer speaker or, or home, you know, assistant device. And then there's a whole nother world out there to move up to. So I don't view it a whole lot different than it ever was. It's all steps in the ladder. And, you know, obviously we want to let people who are just entering that journey know, hey, look, we've got something that can be life-changing in a lot of ways and certainly enhance your life. And then as you grow in your experiences, we're going to be right along there with you.
0: Okay. That being said, who is the average Kef customer?
1: Generally, it, it is skewing actually exciting that it's skewing a little bit younger, but it's, you know, it's obviously typically a male and it's typically 35 to 55. And, and that's been the traditional the traditional market but what we're seeing over the last uh, year or so uh, because of the products that we're putting out and and i think just because of a heightened awareness that we're skewing a lot younger now too so what what we're seeing is it's it's folks who are getting in their career they're they're at the part now point in their career now where they have some disposable cash that they want to use for their entertainment for their systems and stuff just like it's always kind of been um and are willing to spend a little bit extra money to get that extra experience from things so you know looking out over the last probably 30 or 40 years it hasn't changed that much at all i think there was a period of time where it's where us and other manufacturers it skewed much older and now it's the pendulum swinging back and it's skewing a little bit towards what you would expect that mid-20s early 30s kind of a time
0: okay here's more of a global question what is the state of high-end audio today?
1: I think it's actually an awesome time for high-end audio. I think we, we have a couple of obstacles that we have to kind of get ourselves over, one being the the convenience factor because we've we've given up high-quality audio over the past decade and a half uh, since, the, since sort of the advent of Napster and the MP3 and whatever, and we've given up a certain level of quality for convenience, but now as storage devices are, are getting... Uh, Bigger in capacity and less expensive, we can we can now carry around or, or store higher resolution files, and so now we've been able to marry the convenience of a digital file with this awesome sound of a of a a, big, a really well mastered high resolution record or recording, actually as it were. So, um, I actually can't think of a better time in history to be a music fan than right now because you have so many options. You could be you could be a vinyl geek and, and, and have that whole experience of the sort of um, you know, getting up and turning the record over and being fully immersed in the experience of listening, plus looking at the liner notes. Or uh, you can be madly collecting things from HD tracks and, and all the other services that are out there for high res. And then, of course, you can just stream some really awesome sounding music and make up your own radio station if you want to. So it's pretty awesome.
0: Okay. So let's just look at the technology of audio right now. Where do you see that going? Is there a breakthrough that's happening now, or do you see a breakthrough in the future that's going to take us to someplace else in terms of quality?
1: I think there will be a time in the not too distant future where, um, what we consider high resolution now, which would be 96 K 24 bit will become the norm. And, and 192K, which is now the sort of ultimate, will um, will be just slightly above the norm. And we'll look back on CD as the quaint old days, because yeah, I think the sound is going to expand that much more. Uh, the, the problem that you have there is with older recordings, particularly stuff that was originally mastered for CD from the early 80s up until, you know, maybe five or six years ago. Um, they're not high-resolution masters, so... We're really going to be looking at newer music is going to really expand that um, jazz and classical as usual are sort of on the vanguard of that kind of stuff is what i'm saying um, so what i as as storage devices increase and um, home router technology increases i think we're going to see this what now is the leading edge of things become the norm wireless is an issue for a lot of people because we don't have good routers in our houses we have sort of the the cruddy cable company router and and we're demanding that they do a lot more things than they than they were really designed to do and i think that turns off a lot of people to the to the wireless experience but the technology is going to catch up to that pretty quickly
0: well speaking of technology let's look at speaker technology because really when it's all said and done that hasn't changed in over 100 years it's evolved but it hasn't changed. Is there something new on horizon that you've heard about or seen? No, actually, there there isn't. It's really in how we're getting
1: the source to the speaker. But the pistons themselves, the engines themselves that make up the speaker, uh, hasn't hasn't really changed. And, and you know, I, I guess electrostatic speakers were a thing for a bit, but you know that it just didn't ever reach the consumer end. And and I will say that with being able to, to do computer simulations on on the way the baffles respond and the way the ports respond, that we can have this simple piston arrangement that we've had for 100 years on a driver, but do so much more with it, it with the enclosure that it's in, um, that that's where the concentration is. And then you add in the the, the beautiful thing of, of having a DSP to really fine-tune things Um the speakers are going to stay the same for a while. We're going to play with all these other things. The, just the LS50W, we have a, a – because, we of course, we have the Uniq driver, which is coincident, and you, you know, so it's very – it's time-aligned, but with the DSP, with it, any kind of equalization or crossover – there's always a little bit of phase incoherence coherence that gets that gets introduced, particularly with a with a passive crossover, because it takes time for the signal to move through a transi- uh a resistor or a capacitor or whatnot. But now using DSP in the LS50W, we've done this. You can actually have it be zero phase zero phase difference between the two. So it's exactly perfectly time aligned. So between the UniQ and this ability to to use the DSP to do our crossovers where we don't introduce that time lag, you're really looking as close to, to, to perfection as the theoretical will allow you to do, certainly as a state of the art will do.
0: What's interesting about that is DSP was kind of a dirty word not that long ago. If you had DSP around a speaker, it was a negative. It was not something that was considered a positive. But that being said, it was the same thing in the early days of digital recording, where if we look at what we have now, it's so much better than it ever was. And now it's accepted by just about everybody. But DSP is the same way when it comes to speaker technology, where that's just part of it now. And I think if you can't expect to buy a speaker without it now, is that true? Well,
1: any kind of active speaker system, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the way it's going to be. Now, see there's a difference in philosophy there too because you can have a DSP that manipulates the sound to make something that is not very good sound or at least appear to sound better than it is. You know, the old loudness curve back from the late mm-hmm. 70s where, right, is you know that kind of a thing, or you can have a DSP with the philosophy of, hey, we've got these speakers that are that are designed and built to be as as close to the original as possible but now what we're going to do is take the dsp and we're going to work with your room so with the ls50w for example we we have settings for whether it's on a stand or on a desk or how close it is to the wall and because they're they're rear ported speakers you know that rear wall can can make a huge difference in the bass response so what we use our dsp to do is say hey look how close are you to the wall let's let's adjust um or let's I, i just Hang on just one second, I lost my train of thought. More for post for you. So what we do with our DSP is we say, look, how close are you to the wall? And let's adjust for what the wall is going to do on those reflections. So we can cut the bass down a little bit and all working in a very specific frequency range. So what we're not doing is we're not necessarily toying with the source. We're toy we're we're tuning your room to get closer to what we're able to do with the speaker. And to me, that's the beauty of a DSP right there.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Last question, Jack. What's the best piece of business advice, music business advice, or just business advice that you've either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you?
1: I learned it along the way after somebody imparted it to me because I didn't listen to them when they told me at first and I had to go, oh, wait a minute, that's what he meant. And you know what is is to to not listen so much to – the highs and the lows. Not listen to the naysayers. And boy, it, it, particularly if you're trying to get into this business as a as an engineer nowadays and all, you know, don't listen. Just just go do. You, eventually, you're either going to come to the point where you break through and you do what you're going to do, or you're going to realize that you don't have what it what it takes to to be in the industry. Like whether it's You you like to eat more than you're able to eat when you're not getting paid or, you know, whatever it is, but to stay true to what the goal is. And and I I see, as I look back on the arc of my career, I've been all over the map career-wise, but what was in my heart originally was audio technology. And what's still in my heart is audio technology, and it's what I do, and it's what I enjoy doing, and I do it well. So to somebody starting out, man, if you've got that itch, if you've got that burn, just just don't listen to them and go do it. Very cool, Jack. Yeah, so I'll just put a quick plug if if folks are interested in what we do, we will basically answer all your questions and, and take a look at stuff. And you know, the way that we do business is we're we're always there to kind of help people out. Because first and foremost, we sell speakers, but we're all audio geeks deep down inside. I mean, we live and breathe this stuff. So yeah, that's what we are.
0: You can read Jack's writings on the kef blog at kefdirect.com forward slash blog. That's kef, K-E-F, direct, all one word, dot com, forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and being in my Inner Circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to Osinsky.com and select the podcast tab, or go to com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play